What a privilege it is to be here this morning, Crossway. I love always coming out here and being able to worship with you guys and fellowship with you and like a distant family to me. And uh, I love Jimmy and his family and um, just thankful to be here and uh, just praying for them. And it is a blessing to be a part of, of this. And last time I preached, I believe it was the, the revival service and was in Romans then and find ourselves back in Romans again. Well, Romans is just, it's, it's nice to preach through. When you don't preach through, a, when we're not preaching through a series of books and all, it's kind of nice to come back to Romans because it's a theological overview of the Bible. And, and Paul does such a wonderful job. And so I think it's just, it's, it's great to come to this book. And there's so many truths in it. And, and we have been in it for quite some time, like Marty said, uh, in Life Song. And, and so um, uh, this is a very familiar territory for me as well. But uh, again, thank you for allowing me to be here today and to be able to share the pulpit with, with Jimmy, and uh, uh, it's great. So if you will, turn your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and we'll be verse 6, and we'll read through verse 11. I'll give you a second to get there. Romans chapter 5. I don't have a watch up here, and because uh, my phone's over there, I usually use that. So I've got this timed out pretty well, so I think uh, I, I'm going to preach uh, y'all just don't fall asleep. Is all right? <laughs> no, that's good. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we humbly come to You today and we're just thanking You for the Word that we can stand upon. We thank You for the revelation in Your Word, Lord, that You've given us, Father. You've given us the eyes to see this morning, the eyes to be able to, to comprehend Your Word. And I pray for the hearts today, Lord, that we are able to, to uh, take it in and that we're able to, um, by the power of the Spirit, apply it to our lives and that we don't just uh, be hearers of the Word, but God, we're doers of the Word. And uh, Lord, we trust that in, in You, Father. We, we trust that the faith of Crossway will be uh, spread, the news of it will be spread all over this county, Lord. Uh, we love You. And Father, this is all for Your glory and for Your praise and for Your honor because without that, Lord, we would be just, we would be clay. Father, you're the potter, and Lord, we're the clay, and you mold us and you make us, Father, by the power of your word and us reading your word and taking it, Father. But pray now that you will lead us in this time of devotion, this time of preaching, Father, that we may understand your word by the power of the Spirit. We love you and we thank you. It's through and in Christ I pray. Amen. Have you ever noticed how a jeweler... When he presents a stone he'll, uh, or a diamond or some other beautiful gem, he'll, what will he do? He'll hold it up to a black backdrop, will he not? What he'll do is he'll lay the black backdrop out. A lot of times when you go and you buy your ring, he'll lay it out on the table and he'll put the ring out there and then he'll shine a light upon it. Why does he, why does he do that? He, he, uh, he does that to show the beauty, not of the backdrop, but the beauty of the gem. 
the blacker the backdrop, the mightier the gem looks, right? The, the light shines upon it. As the, the light is turned on and it's shown upon the stone, it, the stone is exalted all the more. It's the beauty of the stone that's shown, not the beauty of the black drop. And the, it shines. And, and much like the consumer, when he buys a diamond or for his wife, or we go buy some jewelry, sometimes we as humans, we can't understand God's love until it's brought to the backdrop of our sins. The black backdrop. It needs to be seen in the light of the right background is what teaches, Scripture teaches. We need to understand Christ in light of the correct background. And, and the, when we understand the correct background in which, which Jesus is shown against, then He shines all the, the brighter. The Apostle Paul, he does this just here in Romans chapter 5 in this Scripture today. He wants to make sure the truth of God's love is drilled deep into our minds. And he... What he does is he does it by darkening the background so that the crown jewel of life, the crown jewel of heaven, it stands out. Paul, through the first four chapters of Romans, has laid out the case of condemnation for all mankind. All, in chapters 1 and 2, he's shown in every which way mankind is sick, mankind is wretched and depraved and morally bankrupt. In chapter 3, he sums it up this way. He says, there's none righteous not even one. He piles it on like a good lawyer does, and he says that none seek after God. Not even one. All have turned aside. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Jesus echoes that to the, uh, to the uh, rich young ruler. He says, uh, you know, uh, talking about Christ, you're good. And he says, no one is good. Paul goes on to describe later in chapter 3 how a sinful man is justified before a holy God. How, a, how this wretched man... How he can be made right, declared righteous before God. And so he makes the case through the rest of chapter 3 and how chapter 4, how it's not being good or by doing the works of the law or following some ceremonial right which the Jews thought you must do, but by the basis of Christ's righteousness that we're made right before God. And that comes from Him on the basis of faith alone. Sola fide, if you will, by faith alone. Paul reaches back. To the Old Testament, he proves that salvation has always been by faith. This is nothing new, and it's not of works. The beginning of chapter 5, Paul turns the reader's direction toward the benefit we have through being justified before God. He says justification, meaning declared righteous by God, is what it is. And ultimately, the chief privilege we have as one being justified, a true child of God, is that we have peace with God. And he goes on to say we have access to God like never before. Remember, they always had to come to the temple to have access, but we know when the curtain was rent in two, we can come boldly, as Hebrews says. We can super rejoice, as, the, as Paul says, in the hope of the glory of God. We have the love of God that's been poured out. We've been given the Holy Spirit. And not only these gifts, but we can rejoice in the affliction. We can rejoice in the trials, the tribulations that we go through. Not because they're good, but because they bring about perseverance. Which leads to a proven character in our lives. And which leads ultimately to hope. So as we come to our scripture today in verse 6, Paul has been climbing this mountain of justification, if you will. 
and with every sentence he writes, as if he's coming to a more and more beautiful scene, it says, as if you were climbing Pike's Peak, and, and as you go around that mountain, and, and it's just every turn you turn, it's another beautiful scene. And, 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 and sometimes we go by those beautiful scenes, oh, that's beautiful, right? But there's sometimes when you come to a beautiful spot in the road, when you overlook it and you say, we just got to pull over and park here for just a second. We need to see the beauty. For all it is. I've done that with Grand Tetons. I've been out there numerous times when we go out to the West and, and it gets me every time. You can't just drive by the Grand Teton and say, oh, that's beautiful. You've got to sit there and just watch it and look. We were talking about the beach earlier. Just and sit in awe of what God has made. And I think that's what Paul does here today. He wants to pull over to the side and, and actually uh, getting out and examining the features a little bit more closely and taking all the beauty the scene has to offer. You see, this is the first time in the book of Romans that the love of God has been mentioned. The words have not made it to the, to the, to the writer's uh, pen yet. And so he says the love of God. And I think it's, uh, Paul says that it's poured out. What a wonderful thought that is. God's pouring out His love. And, and Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, pulls off the road and, and wants to develop upon this truth because it's such a beautiful truth, this love of God. In verses 6-11, through 11, what Paul does is he extrapolates and he amplifies the love of God that's in those who have been justified. So here's the theme of, I believe, what he's speaking of here. The theme, or rather what Paul wants to explain in these verses is why the pouring out of God's love assures believers of hope. Why the pouring out of God's love assures the believer... Of hope. Why can we have a hope when we die, we're going to be with the Lord? Why can we have a hope when we go through the persecution in our life that He's going to be there with us? Why, why can we have hope that He is going to save us to the other ends of the earth, right? That's what He wants to do. Because sometimes, we do it at times, that we forget what it was like to be lost. We forget that this, what this whole salvation thing is all about. Paul talks about we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. And that's very important because we need to know who we once were to understand who we are now. And so the argument is, is, is that, that people may make is God doesn't love me. The argument can't hold true to these scriptures right here. You can't say that God doesn't love you as a Christian. You can't say that. You can't say, oh, I feel like he's a part of me and he's not. And that, that doesn't just hold up to this scripture. And so the aim of the Scripture, I believe, is, is that if you've ever asked the question, how do we know God's love? How do we know the depths of God's love? Well, Paul explains it here. And in summary, it's this. It's Christ's death. That's in summary of it. But yet, we're going to go through the Scripture here and see what that's all about. Why His death is so important. Why it's so beautiful. Verses 6-11 through 11 is like a mini-commentary for verse 5, if you will. What Paul's doing is giving the reason why the love of God is so great and so rich and so unparalleled, so unprecedented, and ultimately why we should never forget it. So what Paul does is he gives us three explanations of the love of God from God's point of view through this section of verses. The first explanation, if you will, is in verse 6. The second explanation is in verse 7, and the third explanation is in verse 10. It kind of sets up for a three-point sermon, really it's, uh, but I don't have three points. It's just really three explanations, and I'm just taking the Scripture at it is. So uh, you'll have to follow with me. But you'll see good hermeneutics here. You'll see 
that we can, how we can understand that is, is these explanations is with the term for. Your Bible should have for at the beginning of it. For while we were yet sinners. For one will hardly die in verse 7. For if we were while we were enemies. And that's, that's Paul's term. That's a term of explanation. When you see the word for, it should cause us to stop. I usually circle it in my Bible because it's a term of explanation. It's like explaining what just happened or what Paul just talked about. So look at me, if you will, in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, this is his first explanation here. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And if you have your Bibles today and you don't mind writing in it, I want you to take your pen and go ahead and circle these words here, if you will. Go ahead in verse 6 and circle the word helpless. This is what I've done in my Bible. And then also at the back of of verse 6, you'll see the word ungodly. Go ahead and circle that as well. And if you'll come to verse uh, 8, you see the word sinners. Go ahead and circle that. And one more circle, verse 10, you'll see the word enemies. Circle that as well. These words are going to be key to helping us understand this text today. And as we go through the study today, we'll expound upon these words a little bit more. So Paul says in verse 6, for while we, and and we need to understand who the we is. The we is believers, right? Remember, he's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to those who are at Rome, the church at Rome. And if he's speaking to them, the believers at Rome, he's also speaking to us as well. And so he says here, we believers, those who've been justified before God by the blood of Christ, we were once unbelievers, were we not? We haven't always been believers. There was a time in our life where we trusted in Christ. I sure hope so. And we became believers. We rebelled against God. We hated God. We were totally wretched toward God. And if you don't believe me, just go back and read the first few chapters of Romans and you'll understand. In chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And Romans 3 really just sums it up. Paul is reminding the believers at Rome as well as us, that we were once unconverted, hating God, in rebellion against God. As we see here, we were helpless against God. Paul has the same thoughts at the beginning of chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians. I think this couples very well. He says, as for you, speaking to the believers, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is not at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Speaking of us at one time, we deserved the wrath of God. And Paul describes the believer as someone who was once helpless. And the Greek word that Paul uses here literally means, it literally means without strength. Totally powerless. So what it depicts is, it depicts this terrible state of mankind. It depicts this terrible state of despair that this man is in. You see, without Christ, man is absolutely nothing to give him the, has nothing in him that gives him the ability to save himself. Nothing of his own ability to, to make himself right before God. He can't pull himself before his bootstraps. This is the one thing that's key to helping lost people understand why they need a Savior. I've, I've talked to many people the last few weeks and, 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 and witnessing to them. And the one thing is, is they think they're a good person and they think that they can go to church and their baptism saves them. And I, and I quickly remind them is, is that when you jump out of a plane and you flap your arms, you can only hope on that very long until you, until you hit the bottom. 
You must put the parachute on and you must trust the parachute. The parachute is what saves you. Christ is what saves us, not your goodness. Paul's already stated that. Man, he doesn't contribute anything to his, God's acceptance. We don't bring anything good other than our sins. Man, man is utterly weak. We're unable. We're strengthless and powerless. Is basically what Paul's saying here. He wants to make sure that we don't forget who we once were. It's very important to understand who we once were. We were helpless to escape sin. We were helpless to escape the wrath of God, helpless to escape hell. That's why the mercy of God is so great. Some of you find yourself, maybe you know people who are in this exact situation today. Those of you listening on the podcast today, maybe you find yourself in this exact situation, this condition outside of Christ. This is the state that you're in right now. You're helpless to save yourself. Paul goes on to state here, he says, that while we were in that helpless state, a state where there was nothing in him that would seek after God, it says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, and exactly at the right time in God's timetable, He died. When the stage was set, the Roman world was at the peak. The Jewish culture, the Jewish world was perfect, was set. Remember, we had an intertestamental period where nothing really happened. God was speechless. He didn't, or not speechless, He just didn't say nothing. Everything was set according to God's timetable. The political realm was just perfect. It was at the right time, according to God, that Christ died. And Paul draws this thought even more in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. But when the fullness of time came, there's that same word there, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. But you see, it had to be the right time. It had to be just right. And, it, and here's the thing. Not only the right time, but it also had to be Christ who died. It had to be Him. This, this phrase is, the phrase brings with it that Christ's death was not an afterthought. This was never plan B. When Adam sinned in the garden, it was never, oh, God responding to something that He must have responded to. It was not this secondary thought. This was always plan A. It's always been plan A. The Romans couldn't overthrow plan A. The devil couldn't overthrow plan A. It's always been that way, and it will be that way. God is not a God who reacts. God is a God who is providentially knows everything. He's a sovereign God, right? So, this is the manner in which God had chosen to save sinners from the foundation of the world. His Son. And it comes in Genesis 3.15. We see the promise. When Adam sinned, immediately God gives us the promise that there will be one who rises up, right? Crushes the certain serpent. Christ was the substitute. He died one time for who? It says for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Those who are in Adam, those born into this world, those whose hearts are depraved. Christ died for ungodly people who have no respect for God whatsoever, who are helpless, who don't seek after God. And this, this word for means on the behalf of. Christ died for the ungodly, on behalf of the ungodly, for the sake of, the benefit of, the just for the unjust, the best for the worst, the righteous for the unrighteous, if you will. The unturned godly, the term ungodly means irreverent, impious, hating God. We, we weren't given due reverence to God is basically what it says. We didn't give Him the right reverence. The wrath of God is against all those who are defective have a defective relationship with God. Romans 1.18, as I've already stated. And Romans 3.18 sums it up. There's no fear of God in them before their eyes. 
No fear of God. Because if there was fear of God, we would hit our knees every day. But you say, you may say, Blake, that wasn't me, man. I was growing up in church, right? I've always been here. I've always done this. And, you know, there was a time, yeah, I gave my life, but that wasn't me. I never hated God. Never as bad as you say I was. Oh, but you were. And oh, but you have hated God. Because the scripture says that. It states that you're sin because you're a sinner. We're not a sinner because we sin. It's just our nature. Born in Adam. It's been passed down from our federal head and it doesn't seek after God. It's ungodly and has no respect for Him at all. That's what makes the love of God so great. Remember, we're painting this backdrop and the, and the backdrop, it's, it's, it's getting dark. The backdrop right here. We just laid the backdrop out. And Christ would die for the helpless and ungodly people such as us. This, this idea in Paul's first explanation is this. This is basically what it is. That since Christ saved us when we were ungodly and came to rescue us when we were without strength, we can never be in a more of a worse condition than that. We can't be. We were ungodly. We were helpless. We can't be any more worse than that. And so there's nothing that He will not do to keep us. That's a great love there. That's the great love of God. And that's what Paul is explaining here. This love of God. Remember, we're expounding upon it. So he's already painted the, the backdrop. Moving on to verse 7. For one will hardly die. For a righteous man. And this, again, the term for. And Paul here in intentional staccato fashion. The boom, boom, boom. He, he drives the point home. Look at what... Look at with me here, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. He pulls in this illustration now. Paul uses an illustration and he's speaking by way of a human analogy. He will contrast God's love with man's love. And so what he says is, is this can be, under, this can be quite uh, uh, a little tough to explain but as far as look, when you first look at it, but I'll explain it and it'll be easier. He says, by righteous man... He means someone who is in high standing with society. This is not a godly righteous. This is not speaking of that. But this is someone who would we would say, man, that is a righteous man. That's a good man in human terms. That's, that's, that's a bold man. I, I have respect for him, right? One who treats others fairly. He, you might say a, a prince or a king, maybe a good prince or a king. I would say our president, but but there's so much political clout there, I'm not even going to go there, right? But someone upon that level, right, is what I'm saying. I'm I'm not, uh, that's what he means by righteous. Someone is a good man. And his argument is, is that one will hardly die for this person. There's rare cases throughout history, right, where someone will die, take the sword for that, you know, for that prince or for that king. We, we see that, right? But that was basically because they, they really had to. They were in their court. But yet, there's sometimes there will be people that will die for this other person, right? Someone who's moral, upright, someone who's good. Rare examples of that. But again, that's in the minority here. That's why he says that someone will hardly die for a righteous man. Here's the point. If a fireman may risk his life to rescue someone uh, from an arson-related fire, but the chance of that fireman offering to bring, to, offering to go to prison on behalf of the arsonist is is nil. He, he's not going to do it, right? He, he'll go rescue that person, but the, for, for the arsonist, why would the fireman go take the place of the arsonist, right? That's what Paul's saying here. He adds to the argument. He says, though perhaps for a, a good man, some would dare, someone would dare even to die. Paul is saying that, well, maybe for the good man someone might die, but it's, it's rare. And that term good means someone who's upright, moral, 
Someone who's an excellent by human standards. Understand that. Paul extending this same thought goes from the greater to the lesser. And he says someone would dare even to die for that good person. Now look at what right here. He's going to just continue this argument. It's great. But God, and, and this, this verse here, it's interesting. Major doctrines swing on small hinges in the Bible. Small little words, right? And we see this, but God. And, and we see this throughout the Scripture, but God. Not but man, but God. And it has to be God. And so he, he uses this, but God. And, and what a powerful phrase, right? Mighty. Small in words, mighty in meaning. He says that the last verse, that a man on earth won't even die for someone who's deserving. Look at verse 8. It says, but God demonstrates His own love toward us and that we were yet sinners. He died for us. You see how he's laid this out? He's gone from the greater to the lesser, from the righteous to the good, and now to the ungodly, to the sinner. But God, who's so unlike mankind, demonstrates present tense, mind you, meaning God's love is demonstrated today through the preaching of the Word and through the testimony of our Scripture. It continues to be demonstrated and set before our eyes, and yes, His love is put out in the open. Ultimately, it was put out on the open upon the cross. This is not, this is not really, this, this can be used for, for looking at the cross, but this is present tense. It's continuous. It's through us. We demonstrate His love, and it's not limited to just one past event. It's relevant for the present day as well. But God demonstrates His own love, and it's an echo of verse 5 where Paul says the true love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's own love is, is distinguished from any other love that you and I have ever felt towards one another. Much like righteousness that comes down from the throne of God, His love does too. His love is poured out from heaven. It's an agape love. It's an undeserved, it's unmerited, unconditional love. A sacrificial love. And here's the crazy thing about it. The sacrificial love gives itself to seek the highest good in the object love. The sacrificial love gives of itself to seek the highest good in the object of love. And you think about that for just a second. He said, someone won't die for a righteous man, hardly. Someone dare not die for a good man. But the object of God's love is us wretched, ungodly sinners. And He died for us. That's important. We had nothing to merit ourselves to God, and yet He died for us. That's the ultimate, that's agape love, by the way. You know, it's interesting. You know, we, we, have, we have this agape love toward our families, right? You love your kids. You love your wife. Why? Because they have something that gives back. They have something that shows love back to them. I love my wife. Why? Because she's beautiful in every way. She gives in ways that are sacrificially to me. My kids, I love them. Why? Because they're beautiful. They're my kids. I th you know, they do wrong, but yet I still love them. You know, but, but, but they, they come over and hug on you and that. And I love them. It's easy to love that way. But what Paul's stating in here, here is, is that there was nothing in us to even love us. And that's the love. That he, that's, the, that's the greatest love, is when you love someone who has nothing to to give back. It goes in our service. When we serve people, we should serve people not to get something back from it, not to even get a thanks from it, but just to serve. 
And this is the love that Paul's stating here, but God. That's why he doesn't say, but man, because man wouldn't do that. It's John 3.16, really, of Romans. It goes even deeper because it talks about our sins, and he demonstrated to us, not when we had something good to us, but when we were in our wretched, defiled state. We had nothing lovely in us, but He loved us anyway. He, he didn't say that He loved us while we were doing good or while we were at our best or while we were clean or when we got cleaned up and we were ready to go, man, I'm good, I'm good. No, He didn't say that. He says while we were sinners. Sinners meaning miss the mark, right? 6.23 for all this. 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark completely. Not even on the target, basically, is what it means. That's a different kind of love. A love so rich that it involved the shedding of His blood of the only sinless man, the diamond of heaven. You see how the, back, black, the backdrop just got black. It just got dark. And it just brings out Christ all the more. Paul doesn't stop here. The love of God goes even further. Look at with me, if you will. And, and I hope you mark that verse 8. If you, if you, that's a great verse to memorize, by the way, if you're sharing the gospel. I've used it numerous times. Just share the gospel. That's the gospel. In itself, there it is. Verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. This phrase, much more than, it, it means this. It means just beyond this, added on to what I just said. Beyond what we just spoke. You're saying, Paul, Paul, how can it get much greater than that? That Christ died for me. How can it get much greater than that? And he says, it can. It gets much, it gets much better. Far beyond Christ dying for sinners, which is great. He says, having now been justified by His blood. Paul reaching back here, looking to the past act that happened, right? Justified. We've been justified one time. Verse 1 says that we're justified by our faith. There's no contradiction there because what Paul's doing is, is when he says in verse 1 that you're justified by your faith, he's looking at it from man's standpoint, right? How man is justified before God. But now he's looking at it from God's standpoint and God's, how God accepts us as sinners is, is by His Son's blood shed upon the cross. That's what he's saying here. The blood had to be shed. I was talking to a uh, Mormon the other day on the sidelines, Phil and I were, and, and the man said that uh, the atonement happened upon, this is what Mormons believe, that the atonement happened in the garden. Christ was bleeding, he was bleeding through his pores, and, and that's where the atonement happened. And I, and I quickly said, no, it comes from the shedding of the blood. It comes from the actual substitutionary death of Christ. It had to happen upon the cross and it had to be Christ. No other man could ever uh, substitute that way. No other man was ever good enough to do that. It had to be the perfect one and only God's Son to die upon the cross. And he says, far beyond Christ dying for sinners, he says, having now been justified. The death of Jesus satisfied the love of God. It took the shedding of blood of the one and only perfect God, man, for the sacrifice to be accepted by the Father. Father. So we are justified by His blood. We put our faith into Him and then it turns around to us. This is what He had to do. This was the greatest act of love. His blood shed so that you and I could be saved. We're justified. One time act at the moment of our conversion when He declared us to be righteous. Never to be justified again. It's one time. 
And he goes on to say, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. This is the much more then. I said, we're getting much more. We don't, we don't, we're saved from the wrath of God. The wrath has been taken upon Christ. And I was explaining to a young man the other day, I said, God's wrath will be settled. It's going to be settled one of two ways. It will be settled upon you if you remain in your unrepentant state. It will be settled upon you. God's wrath will be poured out and the mercy dam will break and He will pour every last drop of wrath He has upon you and it will be settled upon Him. That's justice. Or I said it can be settled upon His Son, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. That's where it was settled. For three hours He took the the greatest... It wasn't the death upon the cross that was the thing He was crying about, right? What did He say? He says, take this cup away from Me. And it was the cup of wrath, right? And God, from the dregs, He he drained the last dregs upon Him, His wrath upon those who would believe upon Christ. And so, we're not to face the wrath anymore. And He says, that's the great thing about this is, is not only did I die for sinners, for the helpless, for the ungodly, but you're also going to be saved from the wrath of God to come. That's... That's the much more then. That should give us hope that we don't live that way. We don't live that way. I've, I know there was the longest I was living. Man, there's going to be judgment for me one day. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to have all my sins real before me one day and there's going to be judgment. No, that's not what... When a believer goes to heaven, he, he's going to be... Look here, God sees Christ. Just, just, justice has been done. Judgment taken care of. But the wrath of God will be poured out against all those who do not abide in Him. And, and this word wrath carries with it the future wrath that will come. There is an immediate wrath in verse 118 that Paul talks about this abandonment wrath where God will push you further down. The more you reject Him, He will push you further down the road and to a point where He may abandon you. Paul talks about that, but this is the future wrath of, to come. This word wrath, it, it pulls with it this heated emotion, this, this pent-up emotion what, like a bull does when he... He breathes with his nostrils, right? And he's, he's, he's ready to come. That's the passion. It comes from the word orge. It's this heated passion. Indignation. God's case. His holy fury. It's not uncontrolled emotions, by the way. That's the scary part about it is. The scary part is that it's actually controlled. It's violent. It's explosive anger that will be expressed in severe punishment and torment upon all unbelievers. But as believers, that's where we once stood upon the wrath of God. And we don't do that no more. That's what Paul's saying. And so the point Paul's making here is since God has already done the really difficult thing, that is, He's justified those sinners who hated Him, we, we may be absolutely confident that He will do what His is by very, as comparison very easy. Namely, He'll save us from His wrath at the last, those who are righteous in His sight. If He did the hard thing, by which He sent His Son, the easy thing is that He'll save us from His wrath. That's much more than That's what He's saying. So this love of God that's done, this is, that has saved you and me from being pounded forever under the fury of His wrath and keeps us saved from His wrath. That's the love of God. This is huge. An enormous salvation has been granted toward us, demonstrated toward us. It, it should make us fall on our knees at the very fall as believers. God has saved us from Himself. He's saving from Himself. Why, though? Why did it have to be Christ? Couldn't God reveal Himself in some other way? Why did He have to slay the sinless, perfect Son? Only one answer suffices. 
because the justice of God had to be satisfied. We've already talked about that. He says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. Christ lived that out perfectly. He lived it out perfectly. It may take us laying our lives down for somebody one day. But we do it because we love them. But we lay our lives down for Christ each and every day. Because we love them. So a major point we see in Paul's explanation is to increase the assurance of Christians that God is for us and will be uh, for us through all tribulations and through the last great outpouring of the wrath on this world. We shouldn't be scared. We shouldn't be scared. R.C. Sproul said, I'm not, a, I'm not scared of dying. I'm scared of the way I'm going to die, but I'm not scared of dying. Why? There's no more wrath to come. Man, we're going to be taken up into glory for Christians, right? So that's the good thing. Third explanation here, and we'll wrap it up here. Third, third explanation Paul gives us, and it runs verse 10 through 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ through Him whom we have now received the reconciliation. And and so Paul, he's not, he's not backing down. He's actually pushing the foot down upon the gas and he's pouring more gas on the fire and he's ramping up. He goes from helpless to ungodly to sinners and now he's gone to enemies. And guess what? The backdrop has just got utterly pitch black is what he's done. It's gone from a lighter shade of black to the darkest space black there is. And it's very important that he does this so we can see the gem, the gem of heaven. Before the word ever pierced your heart and before you ever cried out to God in repentance and faith, same for me, we were enemies of God. That's what we were. We lived in defiance to Him and His ways. We were at war with God. We shook our fist in rebellion. That's what we did. We hated Him. And that's what's interesting. If we hate you, God, and He says, but I love you. I'm going to take the initiative and I'm going to come to you. The great King... He's come to, to us. We lived in defiance to Him. And it was God who took this. And He was the one actively doing the reconciling. The one bringing you and I into peace with, that, with Him. Without His reconciliation work, we would still be in defiance of Him. There's people all over this country. When you go and you speak to people that are lost, understand that they're enemies of God and they hate God. They say, I don't hate God. But you do because you've not submitted your life to Him. That's what the Bible says. In verse 1 of this chapter, Paul says that we have peace with God. And he, he, doesn't, he, he specifically says peace with God. He doesn't say peace of God. There's other chapters in places where he says we have the peace of God, but he, he's, he's specifically saying that we believers have peace with God. We've been, we've been made right with Him as believers. The war is over. It's finished. But you see the reconciliation, it came at a, at a cost. It came at the death of His Son. It took the slaying of Christ to reconcile us to go to God. Paul uses this same term that we saw in verse 9, much more. I hope you understood that and you've seen that. He says much more. And again, he's far beyond that. Paul is making the argument that if while we were in our helpless state, while we were sinners and ungodly, enemies of God, God did all of this. He sent His Son to die for us to justify to us to make us righteous, to save us from the wrath. And here's the thing, how much more will He keep us saved now that we're reconciled friends and sons and daughters in His family. You see, this is the argument of eternal security. If God did all this 
How much more is he going to keep us saved? That's what he does. He says, I'm going to put it on my back. I'm the one keeping you saved. I'm going to have his eternal security. Understand this. Believing in him, there ain't no coming back. You trust in him. He's done all the hard work. He's going to keep it. It's easy. If anything's ever hard to God, right? That, that's the thing. It's, it's really not. But if we, in man's terms, the way we, we see it, right? I, that, that was the hard part. Now this is the easy part. That's what Paul's making here is. God did, all, God did all this while we ultimately hated Him. And now that we're reconciled to Him, He's going to be the one that's keeping us saved. He's gone through all this and He says, I, I'll keep you. That's why I was talking to a young man the other day and he says, we can lose our salvation. I said, there's, there's no way. And I brought this verse up. There's no way. He did all the hard work. He sent His Son. Why wouldn't He keep you saved? Salvation is in three tenses, right? It's you were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And it's really it's justification. We were saved. We're sanctification. He's the one working in our lives. We're being sanctified by the Word, by us walking in it, and we will be saved. We'll be glorified. We're going to be in our glorified body. It's His work. So Paul doesn't stop here. He just goes higher and higher. He says not only this, but he says, he says there's actually, and you say, there's actually more to this? He says, yeah, there is. There's actually more to this. We can, he says, we can exult in Him, meaning super rejoice in God, super rejoice in what He has done. Through whom? We do it through Christ. Yes, and, and don't miss the word received. What does He say there? Understand this, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received it. An ungodly, sinner, helpless person can't do anything. He can't do it. He just cries out in mercy. All we can do is receive it. We didn't have anything to do with our salvation. We didn't have anything to do. We didn't bring anything to it. He says, I'll give it to you. It's a free gift. And man, that's what's glorious about it. It's like, I, 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 don't, I don't get it. A lot of times I'll pray, I don't understand why you saved a wretched sinner like me, one who hates you. I don't understand it. But he did. We didn't earn it. We didn't buy it. We don't deserve it. It was handed down from heaven as a gift purchased by the blood of Jesus. That's what makes it beautiful because we can't, we can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We receive it by faith. It's not a reward for the righteous, but it's a gift for the guilty. So how do we respond to the great word today? I mean, these aren't Blake's words. These are just the Bible's words. We just exegeted the text, right? No manly wisdom in here. So how do we respond to this? Because there's no good for us just to read it we need to apply it to our lives this week. For believers, for those who have repented and believed in the righteous work of God, then you know what? There should be no bored believers in the house today, right? We shouldn't be bored. <laughs> we shouldn't be bored. We shouldn't have anything. We can't say we don't have anything to rejoice in. We've got everything to rejoice in. We should be fired up about what God has done for us, fired up about what Lord Jesus has done for us and how He rescued us from the wrath to come. And when we attempt to contemplate God's redemptive work, we're lost in admonishment. We're just lost. Just, I, can't, I can't get it. When we think of the unutterable depths of shame and sorrow into which the Lord of glory entered to save us, we're, we're caught up in awe and we're staggered. That's where it leaves us. Just in awe. The love is an eternal love for he foreknew us before the foundation of the world. He loved us in eternity past. He loved us when we did not love Him. It's a sacrificial love, an irrevocable love. He doesn't just take it back. 
It's an unexpected love. We spend our life loving people who are easy to love. God loved us when we had nothing that was in us lovable. So, we just need to remember back when we were lost. Milton Vincent has the called the Gospel Primer. It's a book. It's a little quick little book. But talking about how you preach the gospel to yourself daily. It's easy. I mean, it's, it's, it's simple. Just remember who we are. Wretched sinners, right? It's good to go to the Lord in prayer. God, I'm a wretched, vile sinner. And you saved me. And that just puts... What that does is it puts us in our right position. It puts us in our right position. Look to Christ. We remember back to what it was. He says, you were once helpless, ungodly, sinner enemy of God. There's nothing good in there. We look to Him. We exalt in the Lord for what He's done for us. We should never question if God loves us. If that's ever come to us, we don't, we don't have to question it no more because Paul says, of course He does. This is what I've done for you. Of course I love you. So the question though is, is do you love Him? Do you love His words? Do you love His ways? Are you devoted to reading the Bible? Are you devoted to spending time in prayer? Are you devoted to telling others about this great, wonderful love? Coach Newt prayed about the, our community. Lost people. We shared the gospel with over 150 people the other day. I think one person, the question I asked, one person got it right. One person. We, we live in the Bible Belt, but nobody knows the Bible. We got to be sharing the Bible. We got to be sharing the Word of God. This great love. You go to them and say, "God died for sinners like you." But we just pray that God will open their eyes. So, for those who aren't in Christ, maybe it's someone today here. Maybe it's someone who's listening. They've never experienced the love of God. I say to you, the evidence is laid out before us. We're in a helpless state. We're ungodly. We're a sinner who's missed the marks of righteousness, and therefore hell awaits us. Hell awaits you if you stay out, if you're an enemy of God. The God of this universe is, guess what? He's marching against you and He will defeat you. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. He's going to defeat you. And you'll answer for every sin and evil fault that you've ever done. Nothing will go unpunished, but God extends His love to you today in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. He says, you'll cry out to me, I'll be faithful to save you. Repent of your sins and believe is what He says. rose from the grave, victorious. We can put our lives in that and trust in that. And so that's the word today. And so I want to bow our heads and then we'll, we'll sing a song of invitation. And, but let's just go before Him and sit before the Lord here for just a second. And just, if there's any unconfessed sins this morning, I just ask that, you know, let's just take a time for just a second and let's go to Him and let's confess those up. And maybe confess how unworthy we are, putting ourselves in the right place. God, we're, we're so unlike You. We're, we're not a but God. We would, <laughs> but man, we would quickly just, if all oh, that person doesn't love me, I, I, I'll move on. But thank you for not doing that for us. And nothing to come to bring before you other than our sins and our wretched state. Lord, we're needy people. That's why we come to church. We come because we don't have it all together. We come because we, we don't have it all together. 
We're, we need you. We need you for our salvation. We need you for our glorification, for our sanctification. We need you. Though I am weak, you are strong. We confess our sins to you today. We confess them to you, Lord, because you're the, <laughs> you, your son's blood, it washes them away. Thank goodness. And you present us righteous before the throne of God. Lord, you clothe us in righteousness and thank you for not looking upon me anymore as Blake, but you look upon me as your son. Christ, covered in the goodness of Christ. And it's so good to be able to sit before you today. It's so good to have your word presented to us today, Lord. God, I love you and I thank you so much for blood, the blood that was shed upon the cross. Thank you for Christ. The perfect sacrifice. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.